Welcome to Brain in a Vat. Uh, today we are joined by Brandon Warmke. Uh, he's a philosopher at um, Bowling Green State University in Ohio and is the co-author of a book on moral grandstanding. Uh, Brandon, would you like to start with a thought experiment? I don't have any thought experiments, um, but I uh, let me start a quote from uh, Harvey Weinstein. So uh, for some of your listeners who may not know who Harvey Weinstein is, um, he was a Hollywood mogul. He made a bunch of movies. He was CEO, I think founder of a company called Miramax that made tons of famous movies. Um, and uh, about three years ago, he started um, to be accused of some pretty uh, horrible things by um, dozens of women. And, um, and uh, he was quiet for a while, uh, really horrible allegations of, um, of some pretty bad stuff. And then he released a, um, a statement, and I want to read to you that statement. Um, so he, be he began his statement by saying, um, you know, he, he expressed remorse for things that had happened, saying he came of age in the 60s and 70s when all of the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. Um, he said he respects all women and regrets what happened. But what's interesting um, for our purposes um, is, uh, is the following. Here's what he said. I'm going to need a place to channel my anger. So I've decided I'm going to give the National Rifle Association my full attention. I hope Wayne LaPierre, who's the CEO of the National Rifle Association, I hope Wayne LaPierre will enjoy his retirement party. I'm making a movie about our president. So this is President Trump. Perhaps we can make it a joint retirement party. One year ago, I began organizing a $5 million foundation to give scholarships to women directors at the University of Southern California. While this might seem coincidental, it has been in the works for a year. It will be named after my mom, and I won't disappoint her. So clearly, what uh, Harvey Weinstein is up to in this, in this press statement is he's dangling his uh, commitments to certain progressive causes, dangling commitments um, to, uh, to promoting women in front of us to try to distract us or to make us think that he's actually a good person. And his, his comments were universally panned uh, from across the political aisle. I mean, I don't think anyone was impressed by what, uh, what uh, Harvey Weinstein was trying to get us to, uh, to think about him. Um, but this is an interesting case because here we have someone who's clearly trying to convince us that he's a morally decent or morally good person in the face of this, these really horrible accusations. And um, my co-author and I, Justin Tosi, we have this book called Standing, and we open the book in a way talking about this case because here we have a case in which someone is using their discussion of morality or politics to try to show off how good they are. And um, now, obviously, lots of cases aren't as um, big of failures as Harvey Weinstein's, um, but they, his case points to a more general phenomenon, which, um, which is basically the use of moral talk for self-promoting people who engage in talk on, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, people on cable news, politicians and stump speeches, um, using talk of morality, using talk of politics as a vanity project, trying to get people uh, to think well of them, to think highly of them, 
And uh, so we wrote this book, Grandstanding, uh, not really to pick on Harvey Weinstein, but as it turns out, it's actually very difficult to give a clear case of moral grandstanding that's uncontroversial for reasons we can talk about. Um, but, but what we think, the Harvey Weinstein case is a pretty obvious example of someone who's trying to use these discussions of morality and politics, you know, making fun of Trump, you know, the NRA to try to convince people that he's a good person. So Brandon, I, what I'm curious about is you're saying, okay, so he's moral grandstanding in order to enhance his public profile, right? So Weinstein was shamed. And so in order to fix that, he gave this speech, um, or he wrote this letter and, um, that is meant to fix his, his moral status. Um, and that in itself on your view is objectionable. Um, is the problem his motivation or is the problem just that he spoke about these things? In other words, yeah. if he'd spoken about, if someone else had spoken about these things, or if he'd spoken about them for a different reason, would that then have been okay? So is part of the problem with moral grandstanding the, the, the motivation or is that not part of the problem? Yeah, so let me, uh, that's a great question. Let me back up and give um, an account of, our account of what grandstanding is, and then we can talk about some, um, some moral issues. So we basically have three different levels of difficulty <laughs> for giving an account of what grandstanding is. So the, the bumper sticker account is just grandstanding is the use of public discourse for self-promotion. That's, that's the very simple account. Slightly more complex um, account is what we call, in, in the book, we call this the basic account. And it just has two parts. So grandstanding um, involves saying something in public discourse. And we just call this the grandstanding expression. Um, it's going to be whatever you type into Facebook, whatever you tweet, whatever you say on TV, uh, whatever you might say around the water cooler at work. So whatever you say, that's, that's the grandstanding expression. Typically, that's going to involve... Um, what linguists call indirect speech. We can talk about that if you like, but typically it's gonna involve not just coming out and saying, I'm an amazing person. Rarely do you see that in, in public discourse. So there's gonna be some indirect speech. Um, so that grandstanding expression, that's the first part, is motivated by the second part, which is what we, what we call the recognition desire. And um, the recognition desire is, um, well, it could be lots of different things. Sometimes it's just a general desire to impress people. You want people to think that you're on the side of angels. You want people to think that you are on the right side of history. Sometimes it's more specific. Um, sometimes it might involve wanting to be seen as caring deeply for the poor or caring deeply about traditional family values. Um, and that desire is motivating your grandstanding expression. Uh, now, we don't say it's the only desire. I mean, there's very few things that we do that are probably that simple when it comes to the motivation base or why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but we say that the desire has to be pretty strong. Uh, and, we, and we give a test in the book for how strong it has to be. The, the test is, would you be disappointed if you said you were saying and no one was impressed? Um, that's a test for really where your heart's at, what you're, what you're trying to convince people to do or believe with your contribution to moral discourse. So that's, that's the very sort of mid-level, mid-grade account, you know, account, right? It's just this, two, it's just two things, right? You say something because you want to impress people. Um, 
we, we also give a more complex account in the book and then also in, in some psychological research we've done. So we've partnered with a psychologist, uh, Joshua Grubbs, um, who's a colleague of mine at Bowling Green. Um, and over the past three years, we've done uh, seven studies with about 6,000 participants. We put together a grandstanding scale and we found a bunch of cool things, but you can think a little more um, deeply about what grandstanders are doing when you're thinking about what psychologists tell us about social status. So um, psychologists say there's two different ways to get social status. Um, one is by seeking prestige. So when you seek prestige, you want people to think well of you, you want people to, to um, admire you, you want to be thought of as an exemplar. Um, and so grandstanders can seek prestige by using moral talk, by getting people to think of them as a moral exemplar, to be impressed by them, to look up to them, and that sort of thing. We found that um, grandstanding for prestige is highly, strongly correlated to um, narcissistic extroversion. So if you're, any of your listeners know that they're a narcissistic extrovert, <laughs> chances are you're, you're probably uh, likely to grandstand. But another way to get, um, Social status is via what um, psychologists call dominance. So dominance is, uh, is a sort of darker, darker triad of, of traits. And people who engage in social dominance, um, you know, name call, manipulate, shame, embarrass, they seek to push others down. So whereas people who seek prestige are trying to lift themselves up um, in, in relation to others, people who engage in dominance behavior, try to push others down, and therefore making themselves look stronger or better. And some people grant the end for dogs too. I mean, this is, I think, a lot of online shaming and doxing, a lot of name calling, a lot of really dark sort of harmful behavior um, is probably motivated by, by this desire for dominance. So you can think of grandstanding in that way too. Um, people engaging in moral discourse because they want social prestige or because they want social dominance. Okay, so that's a bit, more complicated. And then we also give a very um, detailed psychological story about why people engage in this behavior. We can talk about that if you'd like, but okay. So to your, to your question, which is the moral question. Um, so in the book, we argue that um, grandstanding is bad and should be avoided. Uh, and we devote three different chapters to that. We give a kind of all hands on deck set of arguments. So we give a chapter full of what you might think of as consequentialist arguments. So we argue that for various reasons having to do with social costs of grandstanding, grandstanding is bad and should be avoided. Um, we can talk about any of those. Uh, and then we have a chapter where we argue, we don't call it this because the book wasn't really written for philosophers, um, uh, but it's basically a sort of Kantian respect-based set of arguments. So we argue that that treating people this way, treating public discourse this way is disrespectful. Um, and then we give a set of arguments, basically a sort of a virtue, virtue style arguments, drawing from Aristotle. And then we have um, some arguments about sort of virtue consequentialist arguments. And then we um, kind of the, the coup d'etat is, uh, is kind of the most um, freewheeling part of the book is we argue that Nietzsche for sort of Nietzschean-based reasons, um, grandstanding isn't something that, it, that an excellent person would do. So, um, one way to think about grandstanding is just, is just compare it to lying, right? So, lying 
or bragging, demagoguery, bullshit. These are all phenomena that are essentially defined by their motivation. So it takes, just like grandstanding, there's, there's, a, there's a motivation that has to be there and then some sort of behavior. So just like, you know, you don't lie just by saying something false. You don't grandstand just by saying something, you know, in moral discourse. It has to, it has to require a certain kind of motivation. So the thought is that you could morally assess grandstanding just in the same way that people might assess morally uh, lying or, or bragging, um, those kinds of behaviors. So let me give you a couple of interesting scenarios to think about. So let's say we have uh, a genuinely good cause, all right? So uh, in the 90s, uh, there was a movement against um, the use of fur um, to sort of say that we shouldn't be cruel to animals. And you had a whole bunch of supermodels who signed a pledge saying that they would not wear fur uh, on the grounds that they felt that it was cruel. Um, and they very much lent their names to it um, in a manner that was quite effective. So, you know, it's very rare to see people walking around in fur nowadays. And the argument was that uh, fur is obtained in a particularly cruel manner. Now, let's assume for the sake of argument that those, those models just acted cynically, um, that um, they did this because they thought it would be good for their careers, that they could be seen as standing up for a virtuous cause. Uh, we know that... So that pledge had a time limit on it. And I think once the time limit ran out, some of them did start wearing fur. Um, so nonetheless, if they engaged in this um, moral grandstanding behavior, but the consequences were good, um, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of assuming that they were doing something actually good by preventing animal suffering, um, how do we assess that action? Um, Brandon, just uh, some background. Mark is uh, is quite an avid vegetarian um, or pescatarian. So we've had uh, we, we've had uh, an episode recently uh, where Mark pushes this view. So when he said he has an uncontroversial case, the the mink case, <laughs> I, I, I was quite surprised. It, you know, I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised when he said the minks, but um, but but yeah, I mean, to me that wouldn't seem like a an uncontroversial case. But let's just assume for the moment that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't skin minks and take their, their okay. Protein. I will, I'm happy to grant that for that. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. So this, this gets a little complicated. So let me just um, entangle you a few issues here. Um, so one thing that we are very clear about in, um, in the original paper we wrote on Grand Grandstand that came out in 2016 and then some other stuff we've written and then also in the book is that, um, is that we're not saying that grandstanding is never on, on balance or all things considered the thing that one should do. Um, I mean, I don't really have a moral theory. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an anti-theorist when it comes to normative ethics. I don't mean that in the sense that I'm, I'm like a particularist or something. I just don't have a theory and I'm not sure a helpful theory is, to be honest. All that said, I don't, um, we're not committed to the view that grandstanding is always, always um, wrong. We think it might always have always be bad in some way or some respect. So just like lying, um, I think sometimes or often lying has good consequences. Um, but I don't think that um, shows that you know there's a maybe a prima facie um, duty not to lie that you know perhaps can be overridden on on, on occasion and that sort of thing. So one thing to point out is just that we're not saying that um, a grandstanding can't have good con good um, consequences, um, and we're not saying that all things considered, whatever your moral favorite moral theory is, uh, that it couldn't be the thing that should be done. Um, okay, so then the question is, um, we have to 
weigh up or think about the pros and cons of this sort of behavior. Now, in the book, and mostly what Justin and I are concerned about in our writing on grandstanding is about public discourse. And um, it's situations in which people are giving arguments or blaming people or promoting change and that sort of thing. It's sort of deliberative situations in which people are engaging one another with moral considerations. Um, that's, that's primarily the context that we're interested in. Um, and so it's unclear uh, whether, like, so suppose I'm an Instagram influencer, right? And I just take a photo of me, like, I don't know, flashing fake, fake blood or something like that. Is that grandstanding? Well, I mean, on our view, it's not grandstanding because it doesn't, there's no speech involved. There's no discourse. Um, there, there might be something like what people call virtue signaling involved. We can talk about the differences here if you'd like. But, but there might be some behavior that's engaged in to be showy. Okay. Okay. So that let, let's just suppose that that's what's going on. It's not really grandstanding, but maybe, or maybe there are reasons in which someone records a, you know, commercial grandstanding about this or whatever. Um, the thing to point out is that grandstanding can be something, you, you know, when you're standing, you can say something true. For all I know, everything that Harvey Weinstein said in that letter was true. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't grandstanding. Um, grandstanding can have good effects. Okay, so then what's the problem? Well, we have to have a conversation about um, what kinds of things happen when people are motivated by a desire to um, seek social status with their moral behavior. And, um, and one thing that happens, and I'm not accusing um, you of this, Mark, but one, one thing that happens when people push us about grandstanding is they, they, they cherry pick cases. They'll say, oh, look at this case. Well, this, this action led to this really good thing. And we're happy to grant that on some occasions. Um, grandstanding might have led to that. But what we say is two things in response. One is, um, well, couldn't that person have done that without grandstanding? Um, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of motivation you could have. You could have altruistic motivations. You could have maybe dutiful sort of Kantian type motivations. Um, you need not act on egoistic motives when you're sort of doing your your moral public moral show or whatever, doing your public moral engagement. And so one thought is, um, well, wouldn't it be better in some respect if this person wasn't doing this for egoistic reasons? And maybe that that sort of plays into this maybe sort of virtue theoretic consideration about grandstanding. But the other thing we'll what that will say, and we can talk about the details if you like, is, well, we have to have a serious conversation about what are the typical consequences um, that um, we would predict when people engage in public discourse as a vanity project. And what we argue in the book, and we have some social psychological research um, for these things too, is that you actually get a lot of conflict and you get a lot of problems. So. Um, I readily grant that there are lots of cases in which grandstanding might have a positive impact. Um, but that's true about lying, about, you know, all kinds of behavior. Um, and so, you know, you really have to get into the nitty gritty about, about, you know, so if, if, if what you care about is the consequences, okay, well, what are the consequences? If you care about, you know, respect and duty, well, let's, let's talk about, you know, what grandstanding involves, how it treats people and that sort of thing. Does that, does that make sense? 
Yeah, so let me ask you a quick follow-up then. I mean, let's talk about that, that darker side of grandstand that you referred to, that uh, dominance aspect. Now, it seems like, do you think, well, is it is it effective? So if let's say what you have is someone that wants to self-aggrandize and they self-aggrandize by shaming someone else. So they say, you've said something sexist or racist. Um, you should be removed from your, your post at university. Maybe even that's not sufficient. We should have you publicly beheaded because of the thing that you said. How effective is this at actually achieving good ends? And what does it do to public discourse generally? It seems that you're concerned about kind of public discourse and keeping a certain character to public discourse. So what does this kind of moral grandstanding do to that? Good. Uh, so let me say a few things about the um, general effects of grandstanding and public discourse. And then I'll say some specific things about the dominance part. Um, so in general, we argue in the book that grandstanding has three main really beneficial consequences, social costs that we all have to bear. So it's not just the cost that the grandstander or the victim of the shaming or something have to bear. We all have to bear this because moral talk is a public resource. And when it's degraded, you know, we all, we all bear the costs of that. So one thing we argue is that um, grandstanding, um, certain kinds of mechanisms that are involved in how grandstanding, you know, presents itself, it, um, it tends to cause polarization. And, it, and we have, we have a new paper, should be coming out shortly, um, uh, with uh, several psychological studies showing that um, grandstanding tends to both cause ideological extremism and it tends to cause what, um, what people call aff affective polarization. So ideological extremism is just actually moving your view further away from, from the middle. So here's how public discourse does this. So suppose I really care about um, the poor, and uh, I, I, I believe this about myself. Jason really thinks he cares about the poor and, and Mark, so do you. And so, so I say, we're on Facebook and I say, okay, it, you know, any good person who cares about the poor should support a $15, I don't know what that, what that is in um, SA dollars, but- About 100,000. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so in the US that's like, that's twice as much as the current minimum wage, okay? So $15 an hour would be a significant, it would be a doubling of, of the uh, minimum wage. So I say, I think we should have a minimum wage. And Jason chimes in and says, I'm disgusted. If, Wormke, if you really cared about the poor, you'd support a $20 minimum wage. And, and the one reason he might say this is because, look, if he thinks of himself as caring deeply for the poor, he either has to let me retain that position in the group as like looking like I really care, or he has to outdo me. And so this often turns moral discourse into a kind of arms race. So if Mark, Mark really thinks of himself as like, he cares about the poor more than anybody. Mark says, screw you all, right? If you don't think that we should, you know, offer a basic income of $50,000 a year to everyone, then you truly don't care about the poor, okay? so. You see this dynamic playing out all the time. I mean, in the U.S. recently with some protests after um, some police shootings of civilians, we had a case where we went from, in about 48 hours, we, we had a, the, the narrative was like, we need to reform the police to, we went to about, <laughs> we need to absolutely abolish um, all police. 
And that happened in a couple of days. And I think one mechanism for this was this sort of like um, this moral arms race where, you know, if you really care about cleaning up the police, getting rid of the police, that sort of thing, this is the likely outcome of that process. So, um, so grandstanding is just going to have, it's just, it's just going to involve a kind of, Pol, you know, polarizing effect. And it's going to happen on both sides of, of the political divide. Now, you might think, well, what's wrong with what's wrong with that kind of polarism? Well, uh, polarization, two things. One is um, it makes it harder to compromise. So, especially when the when the polarization is deeply moralized, which is what happens have grandstanding. So, you have a deeply more um, deeply moralized pol polarization. It's not just people disagreeing because they disagree about the evidence. They think my side is the side of the angels, and if you are on the other side, you're like you're a rotten human being. You're you're evil, right? You want to like, you know, you know, like kill the poor or something. So, so you have this this deeply um, moralized polarization that's going to make compromise more difficult because it turns every compromise into a rotten compromise. It turns everything into an evil compromise. The other problem is that. Um, Grandstanding driven polarization, polarization that occurs because of this mechanism of a moral arms race is not truth sensitive. It's not gonna lead your group to the truth. And even if it did lead your group to the truth, it would do so accidentally. And the other side is still gonna be further away from the truth, okay? So why is it not truth sensitive? Well, because when you polarize due to grandstanding, you're not responding to reasons or evidence, right? The incentives that you're responding to are things like, will this get me likes on Twitter? Will this get me retweeted? Will this allow me to look good by dunking on my opponent on, on Twitter? Those are not truth sensitive processes. And so when you have a, a mechanism that polarizes people in this way, it's gonna lead to false beliefs, okay? So, um, so that's one problem is the grandstanding causes polarization. Um, another problem is it causes cynicism about public discourse. So, you know, once you come to see that people, lots of people are engaging in public discourse because they want to look good or shame their opponents, um, people check out. People think this is just a bunch of people preening in public discourse to impress their friends, dunk on their enemies. Um, I don't want an interest. I don't have an interest in this. And so a lot of moderates are just going to check out a public discourse and that's bad because then what you have is basically Twitter, <laughs> which is you, the only views you have represented are tend to be at the polls. Um, and then we have this, uh, we have this consequence that we call outrage exhaustion. So what, one thing we explain in the book is that one way to grandstand is to express, um, sort of extreme emotions. So, um, there's um, work by psychologist Linda Skitka showing that um, outrage is a reliable signal of, of, of your moral conviction. So if you get really outraged about something, that people interpret that as really caring about it. And what grandstanders do is they exploit this background assumption. So if, you know, there was a case um, a few years ago when Obama was president in the U.S. where Obama, you may have, I don't know if you've heard of this, I, I'm shocked that other countries care about U.S. politics the way they do, but, uh, but President Obama once wore a tan suit in a press conference talking about the Islamic State, okay? And it's very rare these days to see a president wearing a tan suit, okay? So just that's background information. But President Obama wore a tan suit 
about the Islamic State. And the political right in the U.S. lost their, lost their minds, okay? They, they got outraged about this. Um, Obama once saluted a Marine, a U.S. Marine wearing, you know, holding a coffee cup, and people lost their minds about this. Um, this happens on the left and right, uh, where people get outraged about these things that it's, it's, they're either not moral problems or they blow them all out of proportion. Uh, and so when that happens, when you have a discourse that's full of outrage, two things happen. One is people lose a sense of what's actually outrageous. Um, they lose a sense of what actually is, merits proper outrage. Um, and then they also um, are, you know, if, if, you know, if you're getting outraged about everything, it's going to be harder and harder to muster outrage when it's actually appropriate. And so outrage, you know, when, when everyone's out everything, um, outrage becomes an unreliable, disvalues the signal of, of outrage. So th those are all things that we discuss in that chapter about the consequences of grandstanding. Um, okay, so dominance. What is dominance doing? So, you know, this really dark part of grandstanding. Um, well, one thing it does, and, and we published a, psych a psychology paper in November of 2019 showing that basically grandstanding causes lots of interpersonal conflict within the family. So, turns out that if, if you're likely to grandstand, um, your grandstanding is probably causing damage to your personal relationships. And um, I think this is per fairly obvious, right? If you're, if you're um, taking, you know, cheap talk stands on things, calling names, trying to shame people, um, it's, it's pretty obvious how that's going to cause um, strife in interpersonal relationships. Um, but I mean, more generally, I mean, just look on, you know, we have this sort of thing called cancel culture now. I'm actually not quite sure what cancel culture is. I don't really like the name because it's imprecise, but whatever cancel culture is, it's driven in part by these, by these, in, you know, in my view, these, these motivations to dominate people. Um, and uh, to shame them, to dox them, to get them fired from their jobs um, for no other reason than someone disagrees with your moral view. Um, and, you know, of, of course, you know, what they'll say is we have a really horrible moral view. Um, but, uh, but no one knows, no one knows the rules, you know, the rules were invented yesterday and they, and they're constantly changing. And, uh, and so people exploit, you know, these, uncertain norms for, for status where they can, where they can, um, you know, gain marginal increases in their status by, um, by tweeting a death threat or, um, or, uh, trying to get someone fired. Now, of course, a lot of us look at us and say, those are bad people, but what grandstanders are after, they're not, they're not often after trying to impress every single person. Usually what they're after is trying to impress their in group, their, um, the reference network. And so, you know, they're trying to impress their team with how gung-ho they are about enforcing norms of that tribe. I don't, I don't know if that helps, but that was a long answer to a yeah, good question. I, I think you've given a very good account of what you think is wrong with moral grandstanding. Um, and, you know, Marcus, he had an objection, which is that, well, it doesn't seem like that's the case all the time. But let, let's put aside the moral question around whether grandstanding is good or bad for a moment. Let's put that aside. Um, I wonder whether there's not another problem for you. Um, and, and that is the problem 
um, it's an epistemological problem. It's a problem around knowledge. Um, and specifically, it's a problem around knowing other people's minds. And this is the kind of objection that um, any psychological account um, of any phenomenon is going to face, right? So psychologists purport yep. to know what's in a person's mind or what they're trying to achieve or their motivations without that person explicitly saying what those motiv motivations are. So we started with a letter or a speech by Weinstein. And during, during that explication, you said, well, it's clear what he's trying to do here, right? He's trying to up his moral status, make people think good of him. He didn't achieve that because it was, it was so obvious. Um, but what's very interesting about moral grandstanding is that a lot of the people who you would classify as moral grandstanding would very much deny the motivation that you're ascribing to them. And so given that, given that if you were to say to someone who is moral grandstanding, well, look, you're just doing this to up your, um, your status within your in-group and you're just doing this to shame other people and you're just doing this for dominance and you're just doing this for some narcissistic reason, Wh whatever your explanation is, they would then say, no, I'm not. I really care about the minks or I really care about the, 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 the anti-Trump rally or I really care about the whatever it is um, or about masks or, you know, in, insert uh, issue here or, or Black Lives Matter or whatever it is. Um, if you were to say to them, no, you're just doing this um, for certain selfish reasons, um, they would say, no, I'm not. Now, given that, um, even if you're completely correct about moral grandstanding being bad or wrong, it might be the case that we never really know when someone is morally grandstanding. That's right. So that's a, that's a very fine question. So there's uh, a lot to say here. So, um, so one question, uh, I, there's a few questions sort of embedded there. One question is... Um, Someone just might say, okay, Tosi and Warmke, how do you know anyone's ever doing this? Okay. Um, and here we draw from three sources of evidence. One, people say they do it. <laughs> I mean, um, I, think, I, I think a lot of us can recognize instances where we've said something on Facebook just because we wanted someone to think that we were really morally good or really smart. Um, and people, people, you know, the book has been out for two weeks now. People have been reading it for a few months. I mean, uh, we get emails from people saying, I'm guilty of this. You know, this, this, this book is hard to read because I feel like it's about me. You know, so that's one source of evidence is anecdotal. Another source of evidence is um, given what we know general, generally about human psychology. So um, we know that most people think they're morally better than average. Um, so there's an entire uh, sort of large replicated research program on what's called moral self-enhancement. People, people think they're morally better than the average person across a host of different traits. Um, they think they're less bad than others. They think they're better than others and they do uh, more good things and less bad things than other people do. Um, so we also know that people are impression managers. So we know that generally speaking, people want others to think about them the way that we think about ourselves, at least when those traits are positive. So if I think of myself as very smart or a good writer or piano player, 
I want other people to know that, you know, that's a pretty, it's a pretty um, fundamental human motivation. And then we also know that people are, um, you know, engaged in what psychologists call social comparison. So a lot of the way that we think about ourselves is in comparison to others. So <laughs> you probably have this, you know, at least I've had this, like, you know, um, you, th you think you're really funny around maybe some friends, but not others, you know, like you hang around some people and they're just like so funny and gregarious, you know, it's just like, Oh man, I'm not funny at all. And then like you, you go home to your family and like, you're the funniest thing ever, they've ever seen, you know? And so often the way we think of ourselves is determined by our social comparison, how we think we measure up. Um, and also look, a lot of people are just, um, Egoists, you know, a lot of us, we really care what other people think. We want others to think of us well. And it would be shocking if we carry around with us these motivations to engage in these behaviors. People brag, people humble brag, people show off. It would be amazing if, like, the only area of human life where this didn't happen was discussions of morality and politics. That would be quite the coincidence. Okay, so given general features of of human psychology, we think it's just very likely that people are engaging in this behavior. And then we have these, these years of um, studies that we've done where we basically just ask people, do you do this? And they say yes. Um, and so people will say, yeah, I engage in public discourse to um, make myself look good. People will, will admit it. And so that's another sort of source of evidence. So that's all evidence for the general claim that people do grandstand. So that's one question someone could have. A different question you could have is, suppose you're on Twitter or on Facebook and you see someone say something that looks to you like grandstanding. Um, so you know grandstanding exists, uh, but you're not ever sure, confident, justifiably confident, that any given person is doing it. And I think that, that's really right. We go to great pains to not accuse people of grandstanding. In fact, in the book, when we give that grandstanding letter, we say he was probably grandstanding or it's likely he was grandstanding because we really don't know what's driving him. I, mean, I, think, I think this case was kind of clear, but, but again, you're right that you don't have access to someone's mind. And so given this epistemic limitation in knowing someone's motivations, there are varying degrees of difficulty in knowing what's motivating someone to do something. Um, this is true with lying, it's true with bullshitting, it's true with demagoguery, it's true with humble bragging. There's lots of phenomena that are like this. Um, now, in those cases, we've, I've never heard someone say like, oh, well, I can never know if someone's bragging. Um, I mean, you might not know it enough to like justify making the accusation publicly, um, but I think oftentimes we're justified in believing that someone is bragging. Even if, if they are just, yeah. I wonder if there's not a difference with bragging though. Um, so bragging, it seems, doesn't require you to understand someone's mind. It just requires you to hear the words they say. So it's, it's, it's in other words, the definition of bragging, the constitutive element is just that a person talks well of themselves. Unless I'm misunderstanding what bragging is, it, it doesn't seem to require some accompanying mental state. Whereas in the case of moral grandstanding, there does seem to be a requirement um, for, for a mental yeah. state. I'm not so sure about that. Here's, here's, a thought, here's a thought experiment. Finally, here we go. So uh, let's suppose I went to Harvard. I didn't, but let's suppose I did. And we, we begin this interview and you, and you say, hey, Brandon, could you, could you tell us where you went to college? 
and I say, I went to Harvard, okay? Just answering your question. I, I might even be embarrassed about it that, that, I, that I went to Harvard, okay? Now, suppose we're at dinner, um, and there's a woman there who I think is really attractive. And we're talking about where we all went to college and what we did for fun, you know, and like what we majored in. And I butt in and I say, you know, uh, I went to Harvard. Um, that strikes me much more like bragging than simply answering your question, even if the semantic content of what I'm saying is the exact same. And I think the difference is motivation, right? Um, well, I might say yeah, I mean, that's one way of thinking about it, that the motivation is different, but you could give a different account. You could give a functionalist account. So you could say, well, the inputs and outputs are different in the two cases. So uh, in the case where you were bragging, you mentioned something good about yourself without being asked. Whereas in the case where you weren't bragging, you were simply answering a question. That doesn't require that we understand the other person's motivation. It's purely, it's purely functional, inputs and outputs. And, and those are the kind of accounts of things that I would lean towards as being much more uh, intuitive because it's a much lower bar for knowledge. I just need to know what they said and I need to know what happened before. I don't need to know what's going on in their minds. And, and that's, that's my concern with the account of moral grandstanding is I, I want, I want it, I think what's very interesting is it's gonna be so hard for you to provide a functionalist account of moral grandstanding that comes out to be with, with the results that you want, the conclusion that you want, that moral grandstanding is generally bad or wrong. Um, of course, there'll be exceptions, but generally wrong, generally bad. Once you insert those mental states, then it's much more intuitive that it's generally bad or wrong, but your epistemic bar becomes higher, and so it's harder to know when they're happening. Now, your answer to that is, well, we generally, we ask people, right? We ask people, and they say, yeah, I'm moral grandstand. But I wonder whether there's a sampling bias in the people you ask, because it may be that the kind of people who participate in those studies are very self-reflective. Um, you know, we'd have to look at your sampling, whether the sampling is representative. And then your other argument is the way we know that this happens is it fits in with our view of human nature. Um, so humans tend to do things that um, are reflective of themselves in their discourse. They signal about themselves. They try to compare themselves with others. I wonder whether that's not, you know, you then, you, you're answering an objection about your, your access to other minds by again referring to theories about the way other minds work. And so someone who's not convinced in the first place is not going to be convinced by that explanation either. Yeah, good. Yeah, if someone just uh, didn't think that, um, I mean, here, look, here's a different way of thinking about our project. Uh, here's a phenomenon. People engaging discourse for, self, for social self-promotion. That's, that's a phenomenon. Call it grandstanding. <laughs> um, now, if you, if you want to use the term grandstanding to pick out something else, that's fine. I mean, and, and we have no, let the many flowers bloom, you know, let, let do, do your thing. Um, uh, what we're concerned with is this this phenomenon, which I think happens, um, and I, I don't think it's, I mean, given the evidence that we provided, I don't think, I mean, given that people, I mean, I assume you would think that people lie, that people eat, that people brag, that people do all these things, and they do them, and they do them out of 
egoistic motive. Um, they don't want to get caught. They want to raise their social status. Um, I mean, there are just, I mean, may, maybe you think the entire field of empirical psychology is garbage, um, but there are fewer, fewer findings, I think, among psych, you know, empirical psychology that, that, um, that rival our understanding of desires for, for status. And that's true in the animal, I mean, just, it's just shot through human mind and animal kingdom. I mean, it's just a lot of that's going on. Um, now look, uh, I don't think it's a problem that if, if I, I can't tell if someone's grandstanding. I don't, I mean, what we argue in the book at length is that, um, you know, a lot of people when they read the book, and I don't mean to pick on either of you, you guys are asking, these are perfectly wonderful, excellent questions, but a lot of people hear our project and their first response is, how can I tell when someone's grandstanding so I can call them out? That's their first question, right? Like, give me the grandstand meter that I, you know, detect on Twitter or whatever, and like, so I can know when someone's grandstanding. Very rarely has someone ever responded to our work and said, oh man, this really caused me to reflect on why I engage in public discourse. And that's what we think is the right, we think that's the right response to the work. It's not, I mean, in a way, the, the response to our work, like, show me, show me how I can get other people. Like, that's, that's exactly the kind of mentality the book's trying to argue against this kind of moralizing sort of blaming culture of blame culture of other centered. I mean, there's this really nice paper by Robert Fullenweider called, um, on moralism, very little read, very, um, it's got like five citations. Um, one of the things he says in there is that he, he says that, uh, morality has a division of labor and the, and what he means by that is that we should be hard on ourselves than we are on others. And I think, there's, I think there's some truth in that. And, and, and instead of going around trying to figure out who the grandstanders are, asking ourselves, you know, am, I, am I grandstanding? Um, and so in the book, we argue for precisely the reasons that you give, Jason. We, we argue that you shouldn't call people. Um, and this is why if you look at my Twitter, I, I don't think I've ever called someone a grandstander. Um, am I grandstanding about that? Maybe. Uh, um, and the reason is for, 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 the, for the epistemic reasons you mentioned, um, but also because of the epistemic, because of a moral reason, because you don't know if you're not justified in making the public accusation. And then also for the pragmatic reason, which you, already, which you also alluded to, because here's how those conversations go. Uh, Mark, you're such a grandstander. Jason, you're such a grandstander. Stop saying that. And then you guys say, Wormke, you don't know what's in my heart. You're grandstanding about grandstanding. And then we're in a locked in this useless conversation about what's in my heart or what's in your heart. And um, the next time that that conversation productive will be the first time. Okay. So, so we just don't think that the way to address grandstanding is by going around calling people out for it. In fact, we think that that's an, the fact that that's a, a common response to our work is, is symptomatic of, of actually a, a kind of pathology in public discourse is like, show me who the bad people are so I can punish them. Um, I know that, that that was not the tone of your question. I, I, um, no, I, th I think that's a very good answer. I mean, it, it is the 
it is the case that moral grandstanding exists. It is also the case that it might be quite hard to know when it exists, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is that it does exist and that when it happens, it has right. these effects. So I think that's a very good answer. And, and you know, this, is, this often happens in philosophical discussions is there's a dis- difference between knowing something, the epistemology of it, and the metaphysics or the morality of it. Does it really exist? And what is it? And what effects does it have? And you're just, in, in your work, what you're doing is you're pointing out the effects of this um, more as a guide towards self-reflection rather than um, external criticism or criticism of others doing it. Um, and yeah, I think that's I understand good. that now. That, that's a very good response. But I, th- I think Mark has been, been wanting to insert an objection here for a while. So I'll hand over. Um, so I have a, a thought. There's sort of, as you, as you sort of say, that the usual way moral grandstanding goes is that you're trying to signal something virtuous about yourself. So you think about the very obvious case of it. Muhammad Ali says, I'm the greatest. Okay. <laughs> and then the other one is, you know, maybe I drive a Prius and that's sort of, I silently say I care about the environment. But there seems to be a kind of other interesting phenomenon, which is um, the first case is a truly religious case, which is that you stand up at your church and you say, I am a sinner. I have uh, wronged all of you and I've wronged God. And you you beat your chest and you point out how bad you are. Um, And you do it because you want people to recognize how good it is that you have confessed your sins. And the secular version of that is something like accepting, let's say, white privilege. So if you think about uh, Robin D'Angelo's project, the idea is that uh, you ought not to deny that you're a racist. Uh, You ought to very much accept that you're a racist um, and say, you know, I'm a sinner and I'm going to do better. Um, But the first thing I need to do is acknowledge my sin. And if you deny that you're a racist, it's just evidence of your white fragility, um, which is uh, which is a vice. So what you need to do is prostrate yourself and do it in the right way. Um, so recently a, a friend of mine uh, posted something online where she said there's very good evidence to suggest that people who say they are not racist are actually very racist. And so my question to her was said on a scale of one to 10, how racist are you? And she gave <laughs> the most amazing answer, um, which is she Hello. said, I'm a, I'm a four. I'm a four who wants to be a zero. Um, but I, I recognize that I've got much work to do and I can probably only ever be a one or a two, you know, and I will dedicate my life to eradicating this sin of racism from me. Um, but I know that it is an ever, you know, an ever branching thing. And I thought, what a perfect answer to sort of, um, to grandstand to basically say, you know, this is the right (laughs) answer. I have the right level of sin. If I said I was a 10 racist, you know, well, then you're too racist. If I said I was a zero, that would be evidence of my full racism. So I give the, the mid path, Perfect answer. Um, so I wondered if you sort of start to see, if, if you do think this are, these are cases of more grandstanding um, and that they exhibit a virtue in a, in a sort of funny way or a supposed virtue in a funny way. Yeah, that's a nice question. Let me, can I ask you about, I'm going to ask you to psychologize your friend for a moment. Because I, um, do you think that what she was doing at, at some level of consciousness was trying to figure out how people would respond to given numbers. So in other words, do you think she was thinking, well, if I say 10, they'll think this. If I say one, they'll think this. If I say eight, do you think that at some level that's what was going on? I don't know. Um, And and one of the things that I 
because she is a friend who I care about, um, I realized the problem with having this kind of conversation publicly, in other words, <laughs> Facebook like right. arena, is that you wind up, right. you have people paying for blood. Uh, and I thought there probably is a really interesting philosophical conversation here. And let's do that offline. Uh, and we had a wonderful conversation right. for many hours about it um, privately. And I, I also wonder this, which is, is there something about grandstanding which requires an audience? So, you know, one of the images you give is the politician at the pulpit. You know, you've got the crowd, you're working up and you're using a certain kind of rhetoric in front of them. Um, or, as you say, the kind of Twitter mob, you know, so you need to kind of pile on publicly. But I wonder if you find this kind of grandstanding happening one-on-one, you know, um, or yeah. if the, the nature of the conversation winds up being different. And, and part of me thinks that we compare grandstanding to what moral philosophers do, Moral philosophers approach moral problems with a humbleness. We sort of think, well, I've got a certain view. Let me try and persuade you through argument. Um, you're open to changing your mind, and you provide evidence and argumentation to get to position. You know, moral philosophers don't often yeah. moralize. They don't say, uh, if you disagree with me on this thing, you're evil. You know, um, they say, oh, it seems like you're approaching this from a different perspective than me. Let's see what we can do to solve this problem together. First of all, I have to say, you have a much more charitable view of, of what philosophers do than I do. Um, I, I mean, I don't mean to sort of just disagree, but I, I see a lot of philosophers saying, if, if you this, you're evil. And that thing that they just said, that if you think it, you're evil, they just learned about like three years ago. Um, so anyway, that's just sort of editorializing. Um, Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So let's let's talk about the public-private thing in a moment. So um, we we say that grandstanding is a contribution to public discourse. So what does it mean to be public? Well, this is an you know an essentially contested concept. I don't know what it means to be public. I mean, is it 20 people, 10 people, three people? I, I don't I don't really know. Um, the reason why we we care about the public discourse stuff and it has to do with um the way that a certain kind of human behavior functions in um politics and in the certain kind of psychological mechanisms that are only really at play with large group um so if you think about like you know, Elizabeth Noel Neumann's famous book, The Spiral of Silence, right? The spiral of silence only happens when, it, when the group is enough, right? Um, now, conformity actually does happen. You can get a group of five people and, like, enforce conformity. Um, so it, it does sound weird to my ears to say, like, if you're talking to your, you know, your best friend or a spouse or something and you're, like, trying to impress them, but to call that grandstanding, I, that does sound weird to my ears. I think in the original paper, Justin and I might have called this high horsing. So high horsing is what you do maybe in a more intimate setting. Um, we're not really interested in sort of making these distinctions. Um, we do think that, and I, I think maybe you were suggesting this, that the, the, the psychological and social um, mechanisms are different. And the reason, I mean, here's some evidence for that. There are some things that people on Facebook um, like in a, like in a comment thread that they would not write that person in an instant message. And what that suggests to me, that part of what they're doing is, 
they're not just speaking to the person they're replying to. They're, as it were, speaking to this person before everyone else. And they're playing to the crowd in some way. They want to be seen in a certain way or send certain kinds of signals. Um, they want their treatment of this person to be seen. And so it actually, you know, this is why we care about these, these motivations is because being in public or being in private actually alters the sort of what kinds of motivations are at play. Um, I don't know if I answered your question about the public-private thing, but, but I think that, um, that one reason we care about public discourse, at least in a democracy, the, the role that it plays in, in political decision-making, um, in norm change, and that sort of thing. Um, now, your first question was about, um, about the sort of spiritual grandstander, and, and could you remind me of the... The, oh, it's, you grandstand by by pointing out how much of a sinner you are. So you stand up and show. Oh, I see. Okay. Cause. Yeah. Um, so the case is, you know, someone stands up in church says, "I am the worst of sinners." Right? I, you know, I'm a horrible person. You know, I was born in sin, and sin's all I do. You know, it's all I know. Um, so, is is the question? So we're assuming that's grandstanding. Is that what we're doing? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if you think it counts. Um, and if you think, oh, other, I see. Yeah. This, it's, this, it strikes me as a sort of different way of uh, yeah. making it all about you, right? Um, you're it seems very similar. It, sorry, Mark. It, it, it seems similar to the person who apologizes, right? So Weinstein, um, the person who says I've sinned and the person who apologizes seems like a very similar phenomenon. Well, um, I mean, so we got to be clear about what's going on, at least on our view, in the head. So the person who stands up in church and, and wails and gnashes their teeth about how bad they are, I mean, my view is if they sincerely believe this and they think that their duty is to communicate this or that it would be good for others to communicate this, that's not grandstanding. Um, so, you know, it, that behavior is not essentially grandstanding or not grandstanding. It just, we have to, we have to fill out the story more, uh, I mean, at least on, on our view. Um, now, let's suppose that what they were doing was a, was a kind of performance where um, they want to be seen as the most contrite. Um, and the way they go about doing this is by wailing and gnashing their teeth about how how, how bad of a person they are. Um, now, is that grandstanding? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's a little funny to my ears, but there's, a, there's, it's either grandstanding or a grandstanding adjacent phenomenon. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to signal something about yourself. Um, and it's not really the context of public discourse. I mean, that's that it's a, per, it's a performance. There's not an expectation of a reply maybe. And so it's not really a conversation. So there's some sort of non-paradigmatic features. I mean, when, one of the things we argue in the original paper, we don't put it in the book is we draw on just the, you know, we give a paradigm account of grandstanding. So we focus on the paradigms and just like lots of phenomenon, apology, forgiveness, love, you know, there's, there are paradigmatic cases and less paradigmatic cases. And I think this might be a case of 
non-paradigmatic or less paradigmatic grandstanding that's, um, you know, a, a, I think it happens and I think it's perfectly, a, a perfectly right topic for, for, um, uh, for sort of philosophical analysis. I just, I haven't thought too much about that sort of, I mean, you're right that, here's what, you know, one reason we don't like the term virtue signaling, which we discuss in the book, um, it's sort of interesting. We think about this topic in 2014 and that was before virtue signaling had ever become like a, a term or a topic. It kind of rose to prominence in 2015. It's kind of hard to believe it was only five years ago. Um, uh, but grandstanding dates back to, you know, the 19th century. And so this new term came along and we actually think for various reasons it's misleading. Um, and one, one of the problematic sort of aspects of this terminology is, is you have virtue signaling and then you have vice signaling. And you're going to have an argument now, argument now about whether someone is signaling virtue or signaling vice, uh, and that could turn on whether people think it's a virtue or vice or not that they're signaling. Um, or that's, excuse me, people could disagree about the thing that they're signaling, whether it's a virtue or a vice or not. So anyway, we just think that's not a very helpful way of thinking of carving up the territory. Um, but I do think that people can draw attention to putative bad traits in order to get people to think well of them. I'll put it that way. Talk in the book about how Erasmus in the, in the medieval period wrote these etiquette manuals for people who could read and people who could afford books. Okay. So that's his target audience. And what he says is like, don't, don't fill your cheeks with pork chops. Don't, don't, don't sneeze on the tablecloth and put it back on the table. You know, don't, don't belch. He's really like, no one told me, told us these things. Um, humans, you don't find these things, you know, in, in our culture, like anymore. Uh, we don't, we didn't told the norms changed. And so we hold out hope that there could be a sort of norm change when it comes to public discourse too, where, where people will see it, see it as embarrassing to, to engage in behavior that looks grandstandish, that, draws attention to oneself and we think that you know we hold out hope that there's a norm change sort of maybe it might take 500 years but um we hold out hope that you know people will use public discourse preserve it protect it for its proper ends or at least ends more appropriate than the than the promotion of one's reputation well, wish you the best of luck with your book, um, and uh, we hope you change norms. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. Uh, we're jointly doing it together, maybe.